Welcome to the sermon podcast for Compass Church. In this service from October 10th, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder interviews David Nonnenmacher about how we as modern believers relate to Old Testament law. For more information, please visit compasscfc.com. Welcome. Good morning. Hello. Hi. Hello, welcome. Hey, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. My name is Craig, and this is going to be an unusual morning. All right, we don't normally do what we're about to do. All right, so just trigger warning, it's different. All right, so we are, we normally, you come in, we give a call to worship, we sing, then we hear from the Bible, we preach from the Bible. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation around the Bible, and I promise you, it's it's going to blow your mind away because it's blown my mind away for a long time. So I'm really excited that you get to be a part of this conversation. Uh, and then we're going to sing in response to what we just heard. So the singing will be in response to, we're going to be hearing about the law, a really confusing part of the Bible. And we're going to be seeing things about God's nature and his character. And then we're going to respond with praise. Um, also, today we are going to be taking communion together, and it's just important for me to let you know that so uh, that you can be preparing your hearts for that right now. So we w- today we will be hearing from God's Word in a little different way. We're going to be responding, and we're going to be taking communion together. Uh, but this is our Theology Weekend, and it's our first annual Theology Weekend. And uh, what that means is uh, we, we, I think it was A.W. Tozer, who said, since human beings are the handiwork of God, so since we're made in the image of God, it makes sense that our problems and their solutions are theological. So we want to think about God today in a really deep way. So uh, we have invited an Old Testament scholar, David Nonnenmacher. He's a PhD candidate at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's going to come up, and he's an expert in all things all things ancient Near East. He's an expert in law and law codes outside of the Old Testament. He also thinks a lot about biblical languages. Um, he's a dad of a, of a one-and-a-few-month-old baby, Phoebe. So just, he's a perfect—he also, just full disclosure, he's related to some folks here, just so you know. He's Duff and Marianne's son-in-law. So if, if that's not enough for you to give him a huge and warm compass welcome, it's that he's related to Duff and Marianne. So could you please give David a really warm compass welcome? Welcome, David. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. David, you you live in Illinois, and you think a lot about the law. Yes. And uh, most of us do not. So can you, maybe, how did you, what first sparked your interest in the law? You know, like, for one of the things I hope Compass folks will be comfortable with me saying, there's a lot of weird stuff in the law, and we love the Bible. All right, we love, love, love the Bible. But there's some unusual stuff. How did you get excited about the law? How did you start really just giving your life to, like, I really want to know in the law? Where did that come from? Yeah, so it was actually back in seminary where I was taking a class on an ancient text, and we were looking at some laws from the ancient world. We were translating some ox laws, and many of you may know that there are some of those in the Bible. Well, when I was working with these ox laws in this class, I'm like, oh, I know this. This is in Exodus and also some in Deuteronomy too. Uh, I've seen these before. And then when we finished working with those laws, the teacher did this thing of like, guess where this is from? Not Exodus, not Deuteronomy. This is from another culture that was actually 
writing these before the Bible existed. Completely blew my mind. Hmm. I had no idea these laws were found elsewhere. It really challenged me. So, so you end up having a crisis of faith around, okay, so this text is older than the Bible. Sounds like the Bible. The Bible's quoting it, mm-hmm. and, and you have these fears of, oh, no, is the Bible true? What, can I trust Scripture? And that, that crisis of faith started you on a journey where you started studying more deeply. Yeah, it really made me wonder, well, how is the Bible unique in its own right, if it seems to be looking the same as other things, where else has this happened, for mm, example? Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and you found answers that we're going to talk about today that actually, would you say those answers really rooted your faith more deeply? And oh, absolutely. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to start with the ox laws, but perhaps before we get there, um, the context for where these ox laws come from mm-hmm. are Israel's enslaved in Egypt. Mm-hmm. God rescues them. He sends Moses. He does all these miracles, rescues them, takes them out of Egypt, saves them. They praise him by the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai, and then, boom, we get these laws. And so I think what's important just before we even jump into the ox laws is the content, the content is coming out of uh, God has already rescued and redeemed Israel, and now he's establishing a relationship with them. Yes. And so the question then becomes, what does this relationship look like? So with that in mind, I do think it, it might be helpful. Uh, we live, uh, I get tripped up sometimes when I hear the word law because we live in a society with laws and um, I proudly ride a bicycle everywhere around town. And uh, did you know this? Did you know that if you honk at me, and when I'm riding my bicycle, you can get a class A misdemeanor in Columbia, Missouri. Did you know that? So if I'm not in danger and you honk at me, like if there's just some New Jersey folks among us and you just honk at me, uh, you, can, you can get in trouble with the law. Now, when I hear law, that's, that's where my mind goes. I'm thinking all these rules and regulations that make a society work and all these things. So I come to the Bible and I'm like, wait, what's my relationship with these laws supposed to be? Like, am I supposed to obey them? Am I supposed to make other people obey them? Like, how, how should I relate to this? So before we jump into the ox laws, maybe can you help me with that hang up a little bit where I'm struggling? Absolutely. Let's just take the bike law, for example. Why follow it? What's the point? Should you not honk at a biker to be a model citizen? Should you not honk at a biker to check off the list of I'm not breaking any laws, so I'm okay? Or should you not honk at a biker because it could make them crash and you don't want to hurt them? There's layers to why you follow a law. That being said, the laws in the Old Testament kind of have this practicality to them, too. They didn't have bikes in the Old Testament. Mm. So could that bike law work for them in various ways is a good question. Um, But the point is, laws in the Old Testament were meant to be more practical than idealistic. More practical than idealistic. Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, Well, the ox laws that we're about to dive into kind of works the other way around. We don't have oxen, so the way that law was given to them was to relate to their setting in life. They had oxen. Well, this is Missouri, so you don't know if we don't have oxen. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There may be a few stragglers, but yeah, so what I hear you saying is when you say it's practical, not ideal, what we've already said is that this law is trying to set up a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. What does that relationship look like? And uh, the great theologian Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so as Israel is trying to live out what it looks like to live with God, 
well, wouldn't you know your ox goes and gores somebody? What would you do in this situation? Mm -hmm. And the law is, what I think I hear, I'm hearing you say is the law is trying to say, hey, here's just a practical way God's people should respond mm -hmm. if this were to happen. Yeah, one phrase I've learned to toss around a little bit is that law is the disambiguation of expectation. Okay, what? Yeah, wait, wait, the what? Basically, law takes this big abstract concept like love each other yep. and gives you specific guidelines on how to practically do that. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the law is earthy. Very much. It's down in the dirt. It's where we live. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, well, let's, with that in mind, let's get into the ox law. You comfortable doing that? Yeah, sure. All right, so I'm going to bring it up here on the, on the screen for us. So we are going to be in Exodus chapter 21. I'm going to start reading in verse 28. All right, here mm -hmm. we go. And if an ox gores a man or a woman and he dies, the ox will surely be stoned. And its meat will not be eaten. And the owner of the ox is innocent. But if it was a goring ox before, and the owner was warned and did not restrain it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox will be stoned, and the owner will also be put to death. Ooh. If a ransom is set on him, he will pay the redemption money for his life according to all that is set on him. If it gores a son or it gores a daughter, according to this regulation, it shall be done to him. All right. So that raises a lot of questions. Tell us some of your thoughts about what should we be paying attention to in this law? Sure thing. Uh, I hate to take us straight from one passage reading to another, but yeah, I'd love please. to lay the groundwork somewhere else before we dive into this. Okay. So getting a, getting a paradigm shift. All right. Where are we yeah. going? Let's hop over to Jeremiah because that reading is going to help us understand this a little bit better. Okay. Let's go to Jeremiah 31. Yeah. 31 through 34. Um, this is going to provide a lot of ways for us to begin understanding how this weird ox law comes through to today and how we can understand it better in the new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. There we are, the new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That's the context of these ox laws. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So basically what I'm taking from this is that this ox law is coming through to the new covenant on our hearts. So we have to find a way to work with this. We can't just mark it off and say, we don't have an ox, therefore we don't have to do this, right? Right, so what I hear you saying is, um, in the, what Jeremiah is saying is that God's law will be written on my heart, and now I have this law on my heart, mm -hmm. and I'm, that law is if your neighbor's ox gores somebody. Right. And so now it's like, well, how do I keep that law mm -hmm. that's written on my heart? Is it, the dog, is it a dog? If my neighbor's dog bites somebody, is that where we go? You know, a lot of people have tried to read that law that way. I don't have an ox, but I have a dog. Yeah, right. I'm not so sure about that interpretation. It has its heart in a good place. I'm yeah. trying to understand in today's context. But the thing is, this law enacts penalties that the church isn't meant to uphold. We have to read this a little differently. Let me recommend a way to read this. Okay. And we can circle back around to that penalty thing if you want. Yeah, if a boar gores a man or a woman to death, well, nothing is going to happen. 
oh, what's going on with that, right? Well, accidents do happen. You can't always control an animal. Uh, But the point of the law moves on. If the same scenario happens again, but that ox is a known gorer, if this ox has been observed to be a habitual problem, specifically if your neighbor tells you your ox has a goring problem and it happens again, you are liable up to the death penalty, it says. So a lot of people like to read this law as if they are the owner of the ox. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad. That's a good way to start trying to understand it. I would recommend asking yourself, what if I'm the neighbor in this passage? Hmm. What if I have a neighbor that has a goring ox, so to speak? What's my role in this? It sounds like I should tell them about it. Christ talks about this a little bit too. He says, when you see somebody with a speck in their eye, first you address the plank in your own eye. You take that out. And then do you stop there? No. You go and you address the speck. The way to do Christian life with one another is to hold each other accountable. If you notice somebody with a goring ox, a speck, check yourself first and then approach them about it. Because what's going to happen if you don't? This makes it pretty clear. So what I hear you saying is, so the law is given to say what relationship with Yahweh looks like for Israel. Mm-hmm. It's given to people in a certain time, in a certain place. And what I'm hearing you say is, hey, we're people who look out for each other and care for each other. And that's not meaning we, we go around and be like, aha, you're not keeping this law. Look, at, it says right here. But it's uh, what I've heard some people say is the hardest thing we have to manage is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we first look inwardly, well, why would I be afraid to tell? And we wrestle with that. And then after we're saying, hey, I'm devoted to God and this is coming out of worship, mm-hmm. I can then go and try to help others. Right. But help not, uh, you know, be the wagging finger in their life. Right. And where the ox law provides more detail, it actually gives you a, a precursor to what happens if you don't do that. What could happen if you don't hold your brother or sister in Christ accountable? It sounds like no matter how you look at it, someone could die. Whether it's an innocent bystander or the owner of the ox or the owner of the speck. Hmm. If you don't help your brother or sister in Christ, not only are you not abiding by the law, but whatever happens could be traced back to you and your lack of accountability. Mm, mm. T- tell us a little bit more about, too, um, we just went through a series earlier this year called What is the Bible? Mm-hmm. And we talked about the law. And one of the things we said about the law was immaturity requires specificity. So immaturity requires specificity. So, you know, for example, uh, I was playing baseball uh, yesterday with one of my sons because baseball is really the only sport worth learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, you know, he's two, and I was having him throw the ball, and he was just, like, kind of, just, like, tossing it. And I'm like, don't throw it to me. And he's just, like, you know, tossing it with both hands. And, I, and I'd have to, okay, let's take it. We wind our hand back, and then we start to throw it. Like, it, I, immaturity, not saying he's doing anything wrong. He's just young. Requires specificity. Israel is young as a nation. They don't know what it's like to be God's people. Right. And so God's being really specific. Can you tell us more about your take on how that also yeah. provides transformation with this law. So this goes down to what the law is out to do to begin with. Paul calls the law a tutor. It reaches out to you where you are, and then it tries mm. to pull you where you need to be. 
I'm reminded of the law uh, when Christ was telling the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees approach Christ and they say, is there a legal ground for divorce? Moses allowed it. And Christ says, Moses only permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But I say to you, they are made male and female. What Christ was saying is, the law had grace with you. The law knew your heart and your heart wasn't in it and it provided grace for you to work with that. But here I'm telling you, I don't want divorce. You can't use the law as a justification for it. So in this sense, the law was meeting people where they were and trying to teach them something, trying to bring them to the standard Christ had to offer. Yeah, and that, so that's helpful. The law meets people where they're Could you maybe tell us uh, what your take on... So we read some of these things in the law, and we're like, mm-hmm. whoa, this sounds horrible. Like, so let's take, for example, slavery. We know mm-hmm. even in the history of the church, uh, a lot of folks justified slavery. They would go to the law and say, look, there's slavery in here. Can you tell us how the law meeting Israel where she's at, your take on how that impacts like slavery laws and other laws that may make us squirm today? Oh, Yeah. The topic of slavery, I don't want to undermine at all. That's a really big topic, and it has a lot of baggage to to work through to understand it. Suffice to say for now that when we're looking at slavery in the Old Testament, it's a bit different from how slavery was played out in American history. So we have to be aware of our our cultural standpoint when we observe that hot button word. This isn't me trying to say slavery's great as long as you understand what it is. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right, right. It is a different context, though. So what is slavery in the Old Testament? It does hearken more towards an indentured indentured servitude. It's a willingness of both parties. It was meant to benefit the slave as well as the master. And there's a lot of grace for the slave in there too. There are term limits. Uh, There are ways the slave can come back and redeem some of his possessions when he's he's left. Uh, There's all kinds of benefits for the slave in this deal. But again, that doesn't quite mark off the, the toughness of slavery. So with this, I'd like to go the other direction. Let's take the slave laws and compare them with other slave laws of their time. Scripture says your brother or sister Hebrew slave. Other slave laws in other contexts demean the slave as Mm -hmm. less than human. But here scripture in Exodus says your slave is your brother or sister. Exodus also makes it a point to uphold their human rights. You can't just pluck out a slave's eye, for example, and expect no penalty to yourself. You have violated their humanhood. Mm. So there's penalties to the master as well in those scenarios. The slave laws in Exodus radicalized and completely changed the way the world was handling slavery up to that point. And, And that might get us to where you started today, where you're talking about your crisis of faith, where you're like, man... The Bible sounds like all these other ancient texts, but what happens is, remember, the Bible's not written in a vacuum, and when we compare and contrast, we're like, whoa, the God of Scripture is moving us in a radically different direction than these other contexts were. So they didn't care about the humanity of folks, and the Bible sets us on a trajectory where it's like, these people are human, mm-hmm. and then that's step one in the immaturity. It's like, I, I don't, you know, I'm not getting everything I want in this. We're setting you on a, pay, a, a path here, and then eventually, as we start to mature, it's like, oh, you know what? Perhaps I, I shouldn't have slaves. This is not, this mm-hmm. is, it's moving toward the ideal. It's practical, not ideal, I think is what you said earlier. Yes, the law is a tutor, and it's meant to teach you the ways of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another, I'm glad you brought up Christ, because I think for a lot of us, too, uh, I grew up in a tradition that thought about um, the law 
sort of as opposite of grace. So you have law on one side. Sometimes God gives law, and sometimes God gives grace. And the opposite of law is grace, right? You know, this comes up a lot. I have a rabbi friend that specifically wanted to complain about that very statement. He said, how can people think the law is opposed to grace? If you love God, don't you want to know what he likes? Don't you want to know how to have a good relationship with him moving forward? If you want a relationship with God and you love God, isn't it grace that he says, here's what you can do to walk with me? Here's what you can do. Mm-hmm. The relationship drives it. Yes. Yeah. So, like, I love my wife, and, and if I should want to know, does she like my playing Spotify and singing really loud in the morning or not, versus mm-hmm. starting with the rules? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us more about tell us more about your take on grace in the law. Do you, are there other places that you see uh, grace in how God has given the law and how He maybe forgives us if we don't keep it? Is there mm-hmm. is there a spot where your mind runs to when we talk about grace in the law? Absolutely. You know, you kind of pit law and grace up against one another, but the real opposite of law is lawlessness. Mm, and the what, opposite of law, I don't, I didn't, yeah, yeah want yeah. to linger. That was a, what you just said was great. The opposite of law is lawlessness, yes. not grace. And when I think of the most lawless time in Israel's history, I think of the book of Judges, where people constantly did everything they wanted to do in their own eyes. Mm. They were a lawless nation at that time. It was really bad. To show you how bad uh, and to show you how the law is not opposed to grace, we can look at the story of Jephthah, Judges Mm. chapter 11 for the whole story. Uh, Let me give a very brief overview of Jephthah. It's a longer story, so I'll cut it down. Uh, But I'll show you what the law is doing here. The story of Jephthah is basically the story of somebody who came to help redeem Israel. Israel kept messing up and God kept sending people to help them out. So Jephthah comes along and he, his goal is to help Israel reconquer the nation, reconquer the land. And Jephthah's going all around winning battle after battle after battle with the Lord's blessing. The Lord tells Jephthah, go around and I will give you victory. Well, Jephthah finally gets to his last battle against the Ammonites. And he's working with this promise of the Lord. If you fight, I'll give you victory. But instead of going down and fighting, he stops and he gives this really high priestly prayer. Oh God, just give me victory here. Just, if you can just give me victory in your name. A prayer that was completely unnecessary. If you just give me victory in your name, I'll be so thankful to you that when I go home, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And he makes this prayer, and he goes down, and he wins. Not because of that prayer, but because of the promise the Lord had already given him to begin with. So Jephthah goes home in his victory and celebration, and he approaches his house, and his daughter runs out. Hmm. Uh Uh-oh. What do you do about that, huh? And immediately he yells at his daughter, what have you done to me? Yeah, that's good parenting. (laughs) Why, Why would you do this? And his daughter as the text paints her innocence perfectly, his daughter says, Father, if you promise something to the Lord, you should do it. Mm. So the father says, okay, let's take two months to mourn because she was young. She'd never been married and she wanted to mourn her lost life. And then he does it. He sacrifices his daughter in accordance with the vow he made to the Lord for victory. 
I've heard this text preached a lot. And some of the messages I hear people say about it are, if God is so faithful to keep his promises to us, no matter what, then when we make a promise to the Lord, we need to keep our promise no matter what, even if it means sacrificing our daughter. I hear that message a lot. I'm here to offer a different take because I think that misses the mark just a little bit. Let me bring you really quick to Leviticus chapter 5. Let me read you a law here. As I read this law, tell me if it fits the scenario we just had. Chapter 5, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. If anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any manner one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt... When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what they have sinned. Verse 6, as a penalty for the sin they have committed, that, that outrageous vow, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them and their sin. Did Jephthah have to sacrifice his daughter? Mm. No. If only he had known God's law. If only he knew what God had already put down for him to see. Yeah, he I missed the point. When we were originally talking about this, I think there can be... So when we just first read through the book of Judges, it can sound like, what? Does God like child sacrifices? Like, oh my gosh, like what do we do with this? This is awful. Now what you're saying is, uh, no, he, he actually wrote in the law not to do that. And also, if you make a rash vow... Here's a way out of that. And when we were talking, you said something incredible to me a while ago. You said, like, uh, like, I wish God had just told Jephthah this. And mm. you're like, he, he did. Yeah. He did. And, and so it's actually kind of very applicable to us this week. And we're saying, hey, theology matters. Mm. We want to think about theology. And it's we, we, we have this imagination of who God is. And we fill in all these blanks. Well, I wish God had told me this, and it's like he did. He, he's given us his word. And it's, it, so it's almost like, would you say that the story of Jephthah is a commentary uh, on what happens when we make assumptions about God and the danger of not knowing Scripture? Yeah. If you misjudge God's character, you will act in the way you think God's character actually is. Mm -hmm. You have to know who God is to know how to relate with him. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and I hear, too, that there's grace like, God uh, knows, again, practical, not ideal. He knows in real time we're going to have really good desires, and we're going to say, I, I, God, if you just do this, I promise. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I don't actually, I'm not able to, like, kind of live up to, I, I wrote a check I can't cash. Right. For you kids out there, checks are an old piece of paper. <laughs> Basically, you just wrote on a piece of paper, and people thought that was money. Um, but so God is meeting us where we are, and mm -hmm. that tells us a lot about his character mm -hmm. as well, that it's always been about the relationship, not necessarily, oh, look at me, I have a relationship because I kept the letter of this law right. here. It's like that, that would be reading it with like Jephthah, hey, you got to keep the letter of the law, you said, but what you're saying, nope, it's about the heart behind it. Right. So many times people don't see that the law tells you how to keep it even if you break it. The yeah. law tells you how to keep it, even if you break it. Yes. You can be in the law, even if you accidentally break the law. 
Hmm. Mm-hmm. Grace. Grace. There's grace yeah. in the law. That's beautiful. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about grace. You made a statement last night about uh, the the ox laws. You said that this is the ox laws show us how uh, the gospel can completely transform a society. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about how are these ox laws doing that transformation, showing us what transformed people look like. Absolutely. So I already mentioned a little bit on that. Uh, a good reading of the ox laws should tell you if your neighbor has something going on that needs addressed, you need to help them address it. You need to do that. That's already good communal living. But there's a little bit more, too. We get down to verse 30, uh, and it says, uh, this is after the death penalty, by the way. If your ox is a known gorer and you bring it out and it gores somebody, you could be put to death. But then we get to verse 30, who, which continues this, this thought. However, if payment is demanded by the offended party, the owner may redeem his life by the payment instead. The death penalty is not the end-all be-all here. So I propose another reading of this. Rather than seeing yourself as the owner of the ox, or even the neighbor who sees somebody mis- mishandling their ox, See yourself now as the person who got gored by that ox. The the offended party. The offended party. See yourself as the innocent bystander, and along comes this ox, or whatever it may be, and it gets you. You didn't deserve it. You were going about your way, and somebody wronged you with their own carelessness at that. You could say, I want the fullest extent of the law on their head for what they did. But here in verse 30, there's, there's another option. Maybe something else can be done. Maybe we don't have to put this person to death. There needs to be penalty, sure, because wrongdoing and sin begets penalty. Cause and effect isn't alleviated here. But it sounds to me like the offended party in this law has the opportunity to forgive, mm. the opportunity to move past it. Now, would that have been common in, that, in their cultural context? So Israel's living in the ancient Near East. Uh, was forgiveness a virtue that those cultures esteemed and, and held up and loved? No. Hmm. I'm not going to say that there's no room for forgiveness in other ancient law codes because yeah. there are clauses that provide ulterior motives. But when you read a law like this, you can't help but read it in the context of the whole book. Who is the lawgiver? tells you just as much about the law as a reading of the law itself does. Mm. And the lawgiver says forgiveness is a value. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so the laws are telling us about who God is and what he's like, and we're seeing he, this is a God who values forgiveness. Yes. Wow. Which is unlike the other gods. I, I hesitate to give sweeping statements. I know. I'm sorry. Because other laws do have other ways to handle things, of yeah. course. Yeah. But what I can say is all those lawgivers never have associated with their character love or Mm. forgiveness Mm. or anything like that. The character of these other authors don't exemplify what we can get from this one. Which is love. Which is love. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also like to, um, Deuteronomy, so Moses, uh, the children of Israel, they were heading into the land, and he says this to them. Hey, I've taught you all these laws. He says that. He says, observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, 
Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And this is the amazing part. What other nation is so great as to have their God near to them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray? Mm -hmm. So that's even, again, I think the important part is about the Bible's a story about how the kingdom of God is restored through relationship. Mm -hmm. And we call these relationship covenants. Um, but we see this relationship get restored. God rescues his children from slavery. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, here's how you can show the nations how near I am. You live these laws, which in our culture, we're like, what? These are so obscure. Mm-hmm. But you've mentioned before heart. And can you talk a little bit about, too, uh, something you said last night about obeying from the heart versus obeying from the law? Right. So it's hard sometimes to look at these laws and say, okay. I'm trying to find God in this law, and I should be able to, but I'm having a hard time applying this law right now. It doesn't make any sense to me. Some laws are easy enough to wade in, and some are difficult enough to drown in. I mean, we get don't murder, for example. That's a pretty easy one. I got that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't murder, don't steal. These kinds of things are all super relatable. We can just bring those right over. Yeah. But what about these weird ones like ox laws? We can't just do it the same way like that. Well... What Jeremiah said stands true for all the law, not just the Ten Commandments and not just the easy ones. All the law comes through to today on the heart. So, to to have this law written on your heart means you live that law from the heart, not from the text. Back then, they they lived the law by looking at the text. Today, we live that law by living it from the heart. That makes some of the application look different. Mm -hmm. Case in point, we don't need an ox to follow this ox law. Mm. Well, that's a great transition. So I do have a couple practical, hey, let's get some boots on the ground here. Mm -hmm. So two practical questions. Let me do the, how do we read this first? But some, just how do we, there's lots of laws. Let me give you some specific ones. So you're saying, yep, we, we, the, all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. Mm-hmm. So let me throw some scripture at you, some laws and say, all right, you're saying I need to obey these laws from my heart. How do I do that? So right, I'm, I'm ready for it. Let's okay. <laughs> Let's talk about how do I obey a, a, ooh, a tithe law? So the Bible, there's lots of places, both in Leviticus and I think in Exodus, about uh, you're supposed to give a tithe, which is roughly like 10%. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm supposed to obey the law, I need to give 10%, right? Well, how do we live that law from the heart is the question. A good way to, to interpret laws like this, uh, a good start anyways, is to say, okay, I'm looking at laws like tithing or what have you. How does this law teach me to love God better? And how does this law teach me to love others better? That's a good, a good formula to approach weird laws and to help you start meditating on them. Remember, Deuteronomy says meditate on the law. Don't just read it. Mm. So you have to sit in these laws and explore them and, and, and feel them out. Uh, it's all about love. How do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? So tithing. Yeah, multiple times in the Old Testament, there, there's a 10% stipulation. And if it's not 10%, it's higher. Yeah. Uh, Deuteronomy has two instances of this. Uh, so how does the law like that come to the heart? And then how do we live that from the heart, right? So let me tell you this. The, uh, uh, the Pharisees like to approach Christ with all kinds of crazy questions all the time. And Christ is in a good position to kind of put them in their place. The Pharisees like to say, we follow the law. We do it. We do it perfectly, right? 
They knew their percentages. They knew their numbers. Christ even compliments them on their numbers and their percentages. He says in Matthew 23, 23, good job, Pharisees. You have done well in counting your mint, dill, and cumin in accordance with the law. But you have failed to recognize the heavier matters of the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this very key phrase, and I promise I'm coming back around to your tithe question here. He says this very key phrase, you should have done the latter without neglecting the former. So what this is basically saying is, yes, the most important thing about law is that you love God and that you love your neighbor. That's the most important thing. That if you're doing that, you're doing law right. But you should have done the latter without neglecting, or the, the, the latter without neglecting the former. This means there's still practice. There's still things we have to do. And what does Christ say about giving tithe as well? Give with a gracious heart. Cheerful, generous giving. If you give tithe, which you should, it's to be done with a cheerful and generous heart. But here's the, the flip side of that. If you don't have a cheerful or a generous heart, you should not give. Mm. You should not do it. And about this 10% thing, I often wonder, we love imposing limits and extents on laws all the time, when if it's really about relationship, then we should give to our generosity. Mm. We should give to our cheerfulness. I don't want to come out against a 10% guideline because you know what? We're imperfect. We need guidelines to help us. Guidelines are we helpful. absolutely do. But what I am saying is this. If you are giving 9%, and it just thrills you to do it. You're so cheerful and happy to give that 9%, but giving that 10% makes you begrudging, makes you sour. It's better to give the 9%. Don't give that 10% if that's what it does. And I also hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hearing you saying if you're giving 2% and you're like, hey, this is, I'm being generous and this is a joyful mm. thing for me, and man, this is worship. God is honored by that yes. versus the person who's just, all right, this is my duty. Yes. I have, I'm checking this off the list. So it's more about, again, relationship and the percentages are just a guideline, mm -hmm. but it's, am I being a generous person who's giving as an act of worship versus mm -hmm. am I keeping this rule that's written down? Right. Does God desire my money or does he desire my heart? Mm, yeah, it's beautiful. Does God desire my money or does he do it? Beautiful. All right, every January around here, I preach the same, not the same. Don't, you didn't hear that. Not the same sermon. <laughs> I preach a Sabbath sermon because, you know, we live in, you know, Silicon Valley has changed everybody's life. We're always connected. It's go, 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 go. So, hey, let's start the year off with this new spiritual practice. It's my favorite practice as a follower of Jesus, Sabbath. How can we keep the Sabbath Verse not in a letter of the law type way, but mm -hmm. through relationship. What would it, how would people do that today? Yes. So the topic of Sabbath can be pretty hot button for a lot of people. It's a it's a very repeated law. Remember the the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Keep it holy. When we, uh, as I talked about a little bit last night, when we uh, experienced the fall in Genesis three, we really lost two big things. We lost relationship with God, with each other, with creation. We lost relationship, and we lost rest. 
These are the two big things that were managed to be stolen from us in the in fall. The in the fall, we lost relationship and we lost rest. You should write that down. That's good. That is good. This whole redemptive plan God has for us is to restore those things. It's to restore relationship. It's to restore rest. Think of what Christ said. Come to me, all you weary and heavy, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. So I want to say this at the, at the start of what I'm about to say. I practice Sabbath uh, regularly once a week, or at least my goal is to. I'm not always successful. Um, I have to lean on that grace sometimes, but I want to do it. I want to do it right. Having a once a week time to do Sabbath is a good structure. It helps you learn about sacred time and sacred place, and it helps you learn to set that stuff apart from normal time and normal place. Keep the sacred sacred. Sacred uh, or sanctifying actually means to be separated from things, to be separated from what's normal. So we have to do that, and to live it that way is a good way. But I wonder, is that an excuse to say, I just have to rest well on day seven? Days one through six, oh, I, I can mistreat myself in whatever way I... I All gas, no breaks. That's right. Yeah. I don't need to rest on days one through six if I just rest well on day seven, right? I only need to be a good Christian at church and not elsewhere, right? So long as I live accordance to that stamp, it doesn't matter what normal time looks like. Mm -hmm. That is not the point of Sabbath law at all. Christ wants to give us rest on every day. He wants to give us a foundation for restful living. He wants to give us that shalom. He wants us to found our walk with him on that. Yeah, so something changed when Jesus of Nazareth came into the world, mm -hmm. and we need to live like that's true mm -hmm. regardless of what day of the week it is. Right. Beautiful. All right, last mm -hmm. question. I know this is burning on everyone's hearts and minds. Parapets. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to everybody as they came in. They were all questioning about that the parapet. That's the question. Yeah. I know. So here we go. So in the ancient Near East, people lived in houses that had flat roofs, mm -hmm. okay? Or if you're from Indiana, roofs. Um, but they had these flat roofs. And, uh, you know, you have a party on your roof, and wouldn't you know, Gary, he's having a good time, and he falls off the roof and breaks his leg, and he's out of work. So what the law says is, hey, you need to build these parapets, these fences around your roof mm -hmm. so that Gary, scary Gary's all right. Mm -hmm. What in the world am I supposed to do with that? Right. Because, you know, on one hand, you have the message of the world. And the message of the world likes to say, that's your home, that's your castle. It's my castle. You do with your home what you want because it's yours. And you know, I'm not out to fully condemn that. There's something in there that's, that's good. There's something in there that's good. It's my home. I live here. Uh, it should represent me. But if Christ is going to prepare a place for us, shouldn't we prepare a place for others too? If we're living to be Christ-like, shouldn't we make our home hospitable? How is it that we can be effective, effective believers if we invite the foreigner, the poor, the widow, uh, the stranger into our house, and it's not something that they can work with? It's not something that feels hospitable to them. Mm. How can we build relationship with people like that if our home is not a safe environment for them too? Mm. So it's, think, it's, it's even in the most intimate places in our lives, how are we people who have changed so that people say, man, this God is near, mm -hmm. even in how they live 
in their, their castle. Yeah. That we're hospitable people. Yeah. So, so just landing the airplane, when we think about law and we think about lawgiver, what would you say is the, the really big takeaway of, man, you know, I want to read the Bible. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you've been a Christian, a lot of Christians get on these, like, let's read the Bible every year plan. And everybody kind of just bows out in February because that's when you start to get to these laws. And it's like, oh, oh boy. But what I'm hearing you say is when you read the law, look for the heart of the lawgiver. Mm-hmm. What does this law about a parapet say? Well, it says he cares about hospitality. It says he cares about care for orphans and widows and sojourn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're, I'm hearing you say, what, when we read now, uh, what should we be looking for this lawgiver as just a practical way that we can read the law and really see God's heart in it? Well, I want to be aware of a certain danger that comes along with this type of reading. Maybe there is an instance where we might literally have to build a parapet. If that's the way we are living the spirit of the law, Hmm. maybe your house has a flat roof and maybe you invite strangers up to it all the time. There's a practicality to some of these laws too. But we have to remember that these laws were given to a certain group of people at a certain time in history and we can't just take all these laws over to us wholesale. Hmm. That's not how it works. You're right to say that when we read these laws, we look for relationship. We look for how we can live the spirit of that law today in what it was meant to mean back then. The practical application might look a little different now. Don't honk at a biker that's driving by you. That's right. They didn't have bikes back then, but if that parapet law doesn't kind of speak to that, you know, I don't know what would. Keep your neighbor safe. You don't want to hurt the stranger, the foreigner. Take the law you're looking at and run it through the heart. That is what ultimately God wants from you. Mm. Rend your hearts, not your garments, says Joel. Your offerings smell terrible to me if your heart's not in it, says Hosea. The Lord has always wanted the same thing the whole time. It's never changed. Your heart. Mm. God's always been after our heart. Mm. It's not like he was like, oh, I want your behavior here. I want your heart here. It's always been about relationship for him. Right. Oh, beautiful. Well, when, um, that's a great transition point. When Moses finished giving these laws, uh, the text of Exodus says this, and he took the scroll of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will listen. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And he said, look, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he, the covenant, remember, is about relationship. And at the end of this, he's sprinkling blood. And he's saying, like, hey, this is the covenant God made with these words. Uh, Jesus sounds a lot like that in the upper room. He says, this cup is the cup of the covenant. And, but instead of the blood of bulls and goats, he gives his own blood. And now instead of just mere words on a page, he also gives the spirit. And that's what we've been talking about through Galatians, our union with Jesus. And so, uh, again, what Paul said, if righteousness came through the law, Christ died for nothing. And what we are experiencing is, man, we have this relationship. We've been welcomed in, and it came at a great cost. And so we think an appropriate response to just hearing about this lawgiver and, and seeing what relationship with him cost us, we think an appropriate response is worship. So what we're going to do in just a minute is we are going to worship this God. 
who is near to us whenever we call on him, who is earthy, who cares about where we are, who meets us where we are. Uh, we're going to worship him in song and then also through communion. So what's going to happen is the band's going to come up and we're going to sing a song together. And while we're singing, there are two tables in the back that you can grab the elements and then just come back to your seat. And I want, to, I want us to all have some time where we're during the song and a little bit after, we're just going to reflect. We're going to reflect on the nature and character of the lawgiver and some of the things you heard today. That this God was a God of love. Man, that was really countercultural in that time. I want you to reflect on some of these things. And then we're going to take communion together. And we're going to just be near that God. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, we're so, so glad you're here. Uh, we genuinely believe, though, that communion is for believers. And it's for people who put their trust in Jesus. It's how we can commune with him. So you can watch and be curious. And if you'd like to become a Christian... Ask the person beside you or ask us. We'd love to talk with you about that, but we ask that you just watch this time versus participating. So I'm going to pray for us as we're about to enter into this time. And again, the, the elements are in the back of the table, and we're going to continue worshiping. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who is about relationship. That's never been about just keeping a checklist, following the letter of the law. It's been about... Uh, us joining our hearts to you. Father, I pray that we would be a people who embrace surrender, that we would be people who worship, who know you. God, and as we take communion, God, focus our hearts on the great cost that this relationship came at. It cost you your life. Father, I pray as we worship, we would feel the weight of your love this morning. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.